Welcome to Tolkien class session number 11, recorded about an hour after session number 10 ended. In this class session, we pick up at the darkening of Valinor, and we also spend some time glancing back at Melkor, Feanor, and some of the events from the first seven chapters that we didn't talk about in the last session. So in our uh, first session, uh, we basically didn't go over very much in the way of plot, but we're primarily focused on talking about uh, the major Valar and Elven families and trying to get some of the name, uh, the personal names, family names, and place names more or less straight. Um, today, I want to be... Today, you know. <laughs> now, I want to be looking at some of the, uh, the, 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 the great stories that begin to develop here um, and will inform all the later stories that will come in the Silmarillion. But before we do that... Uh, I need to back up and talk about some general terms, or rather, a general concept. This is the concept I talk about in my foundations class, um, so it will be review for those of you uh, who have taken foundations. But uh, it, it is a very important one, I think, to Tolkien's thought and to Tolkien's fiction in general, and that is typology. Um, what typology is? Typology is when you have uh, within. So, you know, well, often within a work. It is an echo of a story within another story. Let me give you the, the sort of the classic examples. Typology was basically comes from a way of reading the Bible. Um, and especially interest, uh, it's especially interested in seeing or exploring connections between stuff that is said in the Old Testament and stuff that happens in the New Testament. Um, this is a, basically, it's a pattern that was observed chiefly by Christian interpreters of Scripture, though not exclusively by Christian interpreters. Um, basically saying, okay, you know, we have this major story that happens, because the story of the incarnation, the story of Jesus' sacrifice. But when you look back at the Old Testament, there are these moments which seem to anticipate it, which seem to, uh, well, you would say recall it, except they happen later, right? So it's uh, these parallel stories where the big story seems to be foreshown. It's different from foreshadowing. Um, let me give an illustration. The Exodus, right? You have the Israelites who are being held as slaves in Egypt, right? Uh, God sets them free by a mighty hand. They cross over the Red Sea into the wilderness. They live in the wilderness uh, for a long time until finally they cross the Jordan River under the guidance of Joshua into the Promised Land. Now, if we are thinking typologically, what other story are we thinking of here? What, is, what, what, what other story does this form a parallel to? New Testament concept? I'm asking, of course, chiefly people who have taken foundations and should know because we've talked about it. Yeah, Josh? I'm thinking foundations, but I assume that it's talking about the second coming of Christ, like kind of making heaven on earth. Well, the first, actually, coming. That is, um, a medieval exegete reads this and says, that's really remarkable. It works out in detail, or at least it parallels in detail, the entire story of salvation. So just as the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, so humanity as a whole was enslaved to sin. And they are delivered, uh, especially the crossing of the Jordan River into the Promised Land, 
um, the, the crossing of the Israelites into the promised land is like salvation. Um, first, they have to cross through the Jordan River associated with baptism, as that was the river that Jesus was baptized in. And of course, as an extra special bonus, the person who led them across is Joshua, who has the same name as Jesus. Jesus is, in Hebrew, his name is Yeshua, which is, he's named after Joshua. It's exactly the same name. Um, it, it is traditionally Englished differently. Uh, but it's exactly the same name. So, and, uh, and of course, you know, you've got Moses and the law, right? So Moses, who, who delivered the law, leads them out of bondage, but they're still in the wilderness until Joshua arises to lead them through baptism into the promised land. So a medieval typological interpreter would look at this and say, this is not just foreshadowing. It's not just that we're interested in this later story, by looking at the story of the Israelites, it is a it is a, a you know a legitimate and important story in itself. But it also follows the shape of the story that's coming afterwards. The word the word tupos that the, that the concept of typology is based on the Greek word means outline. Basically, so the, the idea is that the the earlier story forms an outline, which later gets filled in by the later story. So here's another classic example of Old Testament typology: Abraham and Isaac, right? You've got Abraham putting his son on the altar, right? And he's raising the knife to sacrifice his own son. Snapshot, in that moment, what do we have a type of? What, is, what story is being outlined here? Yeah, yeah, the God's sacrifice of, of Jesus, of his own son. Right, upon so that the altar Isaac upon the altar is a type of Christ upon the cross. Ah, but wait. Now what happens next? Right? Abraham raises the knife and God says, Abraham, don't kill him. It's okay, you don't have to. Right? And then instead he says, Look down and there's there's a ram in the bushes, caught in the thorns by its horns. Right? And so he takes the ram and he sacrifices, he takes Isaac off the altar and sacrifices the ram in the place of Isaac. Snapshot. Another typo, typological moment. Now, the ram is a type of Christ who serves as the substitutionary sacrifice for mankind. The, the, the thorns even recalling the crown of thorns that he wears. Right? Um, and Isaac never trusted his parents again. <laughs> He's, he's uh, uh, Isaac is, uh, yeah, often that story is depicted like Isaac's a toddler. Isaac was a teenager at that time, so uh, it's, it's, not, um, it's not a question of little infant Isaac not knowing what's going on. Anyway, um, these stories are outlines that later get filled in. That is, the one story, the great story, lends a greater significance to the, uh, to, the, to, the, to the older story. It doesn't diminish it. It doesn't reduce it. It doesn't eliminate it. It is not like allegory, in other words. Allegories, and we've talked about this before, when you're writing an allegory, you are writing essentially in a kind of code. And once that code is, is you know, once the reader decodes the story, then the story itself is not really important. You, you kind of throw the story out the window. It is only the vehicle for the ideas. So once you get it, then the original story doesn't matter so much anymore. This is, I think, one of the main reasons that Tolkien doesn't like allegory and doesn't use allegory much himself. He was too much himself invested in the story itself to want to just chuck it out the window. 
afterwards. Um, but when you're reading typologically, you don't, you don't chuck that other story out the window. It is ampl- its significance is only amplified by sort of juxtaposing it with what comes later. You'll remember in the end of On the Fairy Stories, Tolkien talked about the incarnation of Christ as the great story, the great eucatastrophe of all of creation, and how the resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation itself. That concept we can see lurking behind a lot of Tolkien's fiction. That is, there is a great story, not only which is not only at the heart of the Bible, but at the heart of creation itself, that all stories uh, connect back to this deep and central truth. Remember also when we talked about mythology and Tolkien's concept of mythology, mythology, a myth is a story which tells the truth. Remember his objection to to Lewis's argument was that you know myths aren't lies. They may be fiction. They might be stories which some people might call made up. But they tell the truth. They transmit the light of the creator. There is a pattern in Tolkien's fiction. You can see a typological pattern on many of occasions. That is, you will notice... Um, and I want to be paying attention to this as we go along, many, many times when we will see the same kind of parallel incidents happening again and again, um, echoing each other. There are lots of echoes, moments that, that, that echo earlier moments and which will be echoed again in later moments throughout Tolkien's work. Um, we can see this happening both in, in, in two different ways. That is, on the one hand... Tolkien's fiction works typologically internally. That is, remember when we talked about the Ainulindale, I was emphasizing how the whole history of the world within the framework of Tolkien's fiction, the whole history of the world is a recapitulation of the vision given to the Ainur, which is a recapitulation of the music that they sang at the beginning. And this idea of recapitulation is one that we see evidenced again and again throughout, throughout history. The history of the world being derived as it was from music, just as in music you can see repeated themes or motifs emerging again and again throughout a work of music, so we can see that same pattern happening within the history of Tolkien's world. So uh, let me give one example that we can see already to the point that we've read in the Silmarillion. Uh, When does Melkor enter the world? Before the first war with the Valar. He doesn't come down into the world right away. The Valar enter the world and they find it unshaped and they're like, oh man, we ought to get busy and actually, you know, we're, we're at the beginning of the shaping of the world and of, and of history and, and we have to do all this stuff so they start doing it and everything's going swimmingly until Melkor sneaks in and starts mucking things up. Remember when it is that he sneaks in? There's an occasion upon which he, he sneaks in and sets himself up and starts infecting the world with his evil, and then unleashes his counterattack and tears down the lamps. It is at the wedding feast. It is at a time of festival. At the wedding feast of Tulkas and Nessa. So all of the Valar are together celebrating. And in that moment, when they are all celebrating 
and rejoicing is when evil sneaks in. Now, where do we see an echo of that again? Yeah. Uh, just before the dim's uh, lighting, they're, yeah. they're doing a festivity and the fan or flips it, flips out? Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, there's, of course, still one going yeah, Fanor's 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 arrival. He 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 does uh, make some kind of Melkor esque appearances at, at certain points. Um, but yeah, the the Ungoliant incident is was definitely what I'm thinking of. The darkening of Valinor happens happens the same way. Uh, how is it that Ungoliant and 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 Morgoth just waltz in and destroy the trees? Yeah, the place is deserted. The whole city is deserted because they're all out celebrating the Feast of the Harvest. So at a time of festival, and, 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 and Tolkien emphasizes, Melkor knew that. They, I mean, he, he timed it for this reason because he knew they were going to be having this festival. So once again, at a time of festival, when everyone is gathered together to rejoice and to give thanks is the moment when the evil sneaks in and wrecks things. So that's already just two occasions, and we'll say, watch this, we'll see this again, the, the, the evil striking during a time of festival. Um, there will be several more echoes of this um, later on. That's what I mean by sort of internal typology. Um, another, another example, um, which we haven't seen the second version of, but I just want to draw your attention to it so that just to make sure that you probably know, will notice it anyway. Um, I alluded in the last class session to um, Thingol and Melian and the effect when, 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 when Elway, as he was previously named, stumbles into the clearing where Melian the Maya is singing with her nightingales and is transfixed and uh, sort of and enchanted and placed into this kind of near stasis. Um, and then she takes him for her husband. I mean, I emphasize the her taking him, of course, because this is a tremendous act of condescension. She, he is, you know, he is an elf. He is one of the children of Iluvatar, and she is one of the Ainur. Um, and yet she... Remember, we talked about how even physical form itself is sort of an act of condescension on the part of the Ainur. And so she condescends uh, in an extraordinary way to bind herself to a physical form, at least during his... Uh, during Thingol's life in Middle-earth and, uh, and to live with him as his wife and be his queen. Um, that is a moment that we will see a couple other echoes of uh, later on and there'll be really important echoes when they happen. The main thing that I would like to uh, emphasize here, when we see these kinds of themes or motifs, these echoes within Tolkien's fiction... The question I want you to be asked, the first thing I want you to do is notice them, but then the second thing I want you to do is to think about what they point to. What is that motif? What is that theme that keeps being played upon? What do these things have in common? What connections are we being invited to make? Um, What are the fundamental principles that seem to inform these stories that keep coming back and getting retold and retold and retold. So that's what I mean by internal typology within Tolkien's works. There is also external typology. Uh, That is echoes of the great story, the biblical story within Tolkien's works. And of course, we can see several examples, uh, two very prominent examples of that uh, in today's reading. Um, When Melkor is set free within Valinor um, and goes among the elves and especially the Noldor, what kinds of things does he whisper to them? 
He, was, he, he spreads lies among them. Yeah. Lies about what? What kinds of thoughts does he inspire in them? The Battle Narrative trying to keep you captive, and the whole rest of Middle you could be greater than you are. You could be like gods yourselves, ruling wide realms instead of serving the Valar here. Right? If you set up for yourselves and expand your own kingdoms, greater glory will come to you. We should be thinking of what? Yeah, this is... This is almost exactly what the serpent says to Eve in the garden. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this, the, the, the fall of the Noldor, uh, the sin of the Noldor, is very much like a recapitulation of the fall of Adam and Eve. Um, and again, it's not an allegory for them. It's not like once we see Adam and Eve, we're like, okay, now can stop thinking of the Noldor. It's not like, it's, it's an echo of it. We see there an echo of this story. And here, it's like the parallel between the story of Lucifer and the story of Melkor and the Ainu Indale. I believe that the way that Tolkien would talk about that, it's not that he is setting out in his work to write an allegory of Christian ideas, but rather... This is the way things happen. Um, these evil, in order for there to be evil, there must be a fall. The fall of the glorious great archangel is the only way you can get a devil. It's the only way the, de- the devil can happen. Um, whenever there is free will, there is the opportunity for sin, for a fall. And that fall is going to look <laughs> like the fall. Um, so again, I don't think he's... It's not that he is trying even to, to teach a Christian doctrine here, but his world is echoing the world outside um, because these are things which, which he held to be to be truths. This is this is this is how it works. Marty, you had a question? Yeah, I, I was just trying to reason that with myself. So kind of what I'm getting is Thanor isn't Eve. Eve isn't Thanor. However, they both went through the same situation separately, but they're not the same. Right. Okay. Exactly. To to identify them is radically to oversimplify stuff. I mean if if you start saying Thanor equals Eve, well that's just silly. Because Fanor's story is very different from Eve's story, um, and there is so and the, and and if you do that, you're going to miss a lot of what's really important in Fanor's story. But their falls are very similar, and for good reason, right? I mean, they both um, the essential 
sin, the, 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 the ultimate misapplication of free will is the shifting of allegiance, the shifting of focus away from God and towards the self. Whenever you do what Lucifer did, what Melkor does, that is try to augment the glory of your own position, whenever you try to build yourself up and want to assert your will over others and be called Lord, well, that's, that's the fall. That's what, that's what, that's what it means <laughs> to fall. That's what sin is. Um, that is what Christianity teaches and what Tolkien believes to be at the root of all misapplication of free will. Um, so, of course, they're echoes. And similarly, right after Genesis chapter 3, where we get the fall, what happens in Genesis chapter 4? Does anyone recall? It's the first sin that we get after Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Cain and Abel, yes. Cain and Abel is what we get in, in, uh, in, in Genesis 4. So right after the Noldor and especially Feanor fall prey to the whispers of, of Melkor and begin to, and, and, and succumb to that desire to augment their own glory and become selfish and self-focused, what happens? Kinslay. The kinslaying. Yeah, and even before that, Feanor drawing his sword on Fingolfin, right? We almost get a literal Cain and Abel moment of one brother killing the other out of envy, right? And then certainly the kinslaying in a, in, 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 in a larger and more profound uh, way. I mean, that is, the, that is the big event. The kinslaying is the great sin which will haunt the Noldor for the rest of, 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 for the rest of their time here in, in the Silmarillion. Yeah, Mac? Uh, when he talks about it, he alludes to... Uh, a song with a complicated elephant, and I can't remember what's called my head. Yeah. And the story is told in more detail. Uh, often when he does that, he means he actually wrote it somewhere. Is that the case in this? It's not the case in this one. Um, sometimes he has, and sometimes he hasn't. Um, one of the things, and this has been pointed out by, by, by many people, uh, Tom Shippey especially, but many others, one of the things that makes Tolkien's fiction really remarkable um, as a work of fiction, one of the things that is different about it from most other fiction is the the kind of depth that he creates by the reference to and the opening up of untold stories. Um, when you read Tolkien, you, get, you inescapably get the sense that you're only reading the tip of the iceberg, that there are all these stories out there um, that are written or that exist somewhere but that we don't know about. Um, a friend of mine was making this point actually uh, on my Facebook page after one of our uh, when we were talking about Smith of Wooten Major. And he, he was pointing out that you know like that, that remember that moment in Smith of Wooten Major uh, where um, he, he meets the Elven warriors who are returning from battle on 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 the on the shore, and we know absolutely nothing about what was going on there. Clearly, Smith. Uh, is a complete non-figure in that story and has just stumbled upon the fringes of some great story, which he is so distant from that he didn't even have any clue what story is going on there. But yet we are sort of given that sense of there is a, there is a, a profundity of history and backstory here that we can see happens but, but, but never get shown. Um, and that's, uh, Tolkien does that consistently throughout his works. Uh, really provides that sense of that sense of depth. So no, that one that one is not written. There's some others that are. Um, the there will be references at the beginning of the story of uh, Baron and Luthien and at the beginning of the story of Turin Turinbar, uh, that there are longer versions of these songs that are out there. And those Tolkien actually did undertake uh, extended verse 
versions of those two stories. Um, he never finished either one of them. Uh, Tolkien finished it. The Children of Hurin is a later adaptation of that. It's not, he originally was writing that in alliterative verse. Uh, and the alliterative verse version of The Children of Hurin didn't, didn't get finished. Um, the prose version, which has recently been published under the title The Children of Hurin, which is what, in the Silmarillion, he says you know, that uh, the, there's the, the, the really long song uh, called The Children of Hurin, uh, which tells this story more fully. Um, that has been put together. It's one of the big stories that he worked on many times. Uh, but I said the, the poetic parts he didn't finish. If you want to read the parts that he did write of, those, of, the, of the long verse versions of both Baron and Luthien and the Turin Turinbar story, uh, it's available in Christopher Tolkien's History of Middle-earth series, The Ways of Beleriand, uh, uh, which is volume three, I think, uh, of the series, will give you in full the, 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 um, the songs. But most of the time, it's actually not. Um, the stories aren't actually extant. Brittany, you have a question? Where is like, um, the Book of Lost Tales? And the Book of Lost Tales um, uh, is volumes one and two of the history of Middle-earth. Um, that was... I hesitate to say this, but that was basically the first thing that Tolkien wrote. Um, the very first version of the stories, which later on came to be the Silmarillion, um, were originally sort of conceived as a collection that he called the Book of Lost Tales. Um, so when, if you go back and read Book of Lost Tales Part 1 and 2, which are volumes 1 and 2 of the History of Middle-earth series, um, those are basically still not the first. They've been revised. Um, but they're the versions of these stories that Tolkien was working on way back in like the 20s, uh, basically. Um, decades before he published The Hobbit. Many decades before he published The Lord of the Rings and 50 years before The Silmarillion actually came out in print. Um, it's one of the things that Christopher Tolkien did in publishing the Silmarillion was basically go through all of these different versions of the stories and sort of decide what are the, um, you know, how was it that, how can he come closest to how Tolkien really kind of wanted those packaged and delivered in the end, um, which is which was a huge challenge. Um, in part, uh, in the in the forward to uh, to the Book of Lost Tales, Part One, the very first one of the history of the of Middle-earth series. Christopher Tolkien says that parts of the, part of the reason he published that series was uh, because he got a lot, there, was a lot, there were a lot of critics when the Silmarillion was published who basically were skeptical how much of it Tolkien wrote. They're like, ah, oh, this sounds like it's probably, you know, Christopher basically kind of threw this stuff together and is trying to sort of pass it off as his father's stuff. And Christopher was like, oh yeah? <laughs> I shall give you the full manuscript history of this. I will, I, will, I will punish you by giving you more information than you ever wanted on everything so you can see exactly where this came from. And it's, a fant- it's an amazing work of scholarship. I mean, the the History of Middle-Earth series is just a fantastic... Uh, it's, it's an amazing resource, and it's almost unparalleled. I mean, I don't know of any other example like that where we can see, you know, for any other author, where we can see the way over the course of his entire lifetime uh, his ideas and stories develop and change. And uh, it's just the, the kind of insight that you can get into um, the imaginative process and the sub-creative process of Tolkien's work through reading that series is, is I mean, I, said, I just, I don't know anything like it at all. Um, even down to immense detail in the section of the History of Middle-earth series, which is uh, the history of the Lord of the Rings, he actually goes through sort of draft by draft uh, the composition of, of the Lord of the Rings. It's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. Um, 
It's a little more technical than most people enjoy, but, uh, but really worth it, I think. Um, and our library owns the whole thing, so it is open to you. Keeping typology in mind, I want to talk in general uh, about the career and fates of the wicked. Uh, we have several examples. Where I want to start in looking at, uh, we talked about the nature of evil to some extent when we talked about the Aino Indole, um and its relationship with Iluvatar's creation. Here, I want to focus not on the nature of evil itself, philosophically speaking, but on the careers of evil creatures, specifically. Um, what they do, what makes them tick, and what happens to them. And I want to start not with Melkor, but with Ungoliant, the monster that helps Melkor uh, to destroy the trees. And I, I want to start with her, not because she's more important than Melkor, but because she's a cleaner example. Um, the career of Ungoliant... Uh, in part because we get so much less of it than the career of Melkor, provides a really great kind of paradigm uh, for evil. And, and it's, it's, it, her, her career forms a pattern which we will see repeated again and again. Um, where does she start? Ungoliant. What's the beginning of her career? Um, she started as a servant to Melkor. Yes. Uh, abandoned him and did her own thing. Yeah. She, she sets up on her own. This, of course, is, a gen, is something that we will always see. Uh, evil creatures, by definition, never really work together well in harmony, ever. Because, of course, what it means to be evil is to be fundamentally self-seeking. Um, creatures who are evil, again, by definition, are those who are always looking out for themselves. So you can never really trust them. And they're always going to break up and, and have dissent among themselves. So Ungoliant was his servant, was, dis, was one of those seduced by him in the music, but then set up on her own. But now Melkor comes and asks for her help. What's she like? We well, know what she looks like, right? What is her form? Spider. A spider. She's, she's a great spider. Notice the description of her webs. It's on page 73. The last part of the second paragraph here in chapter 8 describes her, her little declaration of independence. But she disowned her master, desiring to be mistress of her own lust, taking all things to herself to feed her emptiness. Taking all things to herself to feed her emptiness. Uh, yeah, a wonderful sort of snapshot of what it means to be evil. The next paragraph in a ravine she lived and took shape as a spider of monstrous form, weaving her black webs in a cleft of the mountains. There she sucked up all light that she could find and spun it forth again in dark nets of strangling gloom until no light more could come to her abode and she was famished. What do we learn there? You can actually slowly destroy herself she off the light and Yes, she feeds on light, and the light she takes perverts and spins out into her webs of darkness. And those webs of darkness cut off all the light. And so now she's famished. And it's her own fault that she's famished because of her own consumption of light. This is another fundamental principle that we will see again and again about evil creatures in Tolkien's world. Evil is always self-destructive. In this way, not only is it always divided against, against each other, it is always self-destructive. 
Mac? Oh, I mean, it seems like it's, in a, it's, the, it's the way most organisms work. They absorb what's useful to them, and then they just output whatever isn't. It's like if you put a human being in an enclosed space long enough, eventually the human will fill the space with carbon dioxide, which they can't use. So it, it seems like it's pretty much the same principle, except with light and darkness instead of oxygen and carbon dioxide. But good people never seem to have this problem. I mean, of course, good people locked I mean, in a closed are, room would have... No, exactly. They, their relationship to light is different, and that's, that's what makes the difference. Right? That she is, as it said in the previous paragraph, um, she is seeking to take all things into herself to feed her emptiness. Um, of course, it doesn't make her more full. In the end, it makes her more empty. Um, but that's, again, that's what... If, it is what suffocates her is the relationship that she has to light. Were she properly related to light, all of the people in Valinor love light and, in a sense, subsist on it, are fed by it. Again, remember the Calaquendi and the Moraquendi, right? But they don't consume it. They don't seek to take it into themselves uh, to, to acquire it, right, and to make it their own and to nourish themselves at its expense and at the expense of everyone else, right? I mean, one could say in one sense that Ungoliant is the ultimate, uh, showing sort of the ultimate selfishness, right? I'm not going to share the light with anybody else. I'm going to drink it all in myself and then only I will have it and it will feed me and everyone else will be deprived. And that's what the darkness then that she's, that she's spinning out. Um, so, I mean, that I think is really the, the, the primary principle, that we that we see that separates Ungoliant from others. Marta? Um, yeah, I, I agree. And to kind of further Max's metaphor, um, you know, you say that you take in oxygen, you produce something else. Well, she takes in light, and she doesn't produce darkness. She produces unlight. Yes. It's not darkness. Darkness has use in some ways. Unlight has no use. It's just nothing. So no one's going to be able to use unlight. It's just there and it's awful. So that's kind of the difference. Yes, yes, and you remember last, well, the time before last, um, when I was using light as a metaphor for good and evil and how evil doesn't have a positive subsisting existence in itself, um, but is only, it is only a negation, an absence, like darkness is an absence of light. And here, Ungoliant makes an unlight, right? She makes a darkness that is not an absence, but, but an actual thing. Well, but of course, she's making it out of light, Right? Again, evil is always derivative of good in this way. So actually, Ungolian kind of illustrates that principle in this. But you're right. It's not just darkness. It's not absence of light. It is unlight. Um, and, and her webs are the sort of the primary vehicle of that, of that unlight. When uh, the Valar try to pursue her, when Tolkas and Orome try to pursue her, when, when they're fleeing Valinor, they get caught in the webs of her unlight and Tolkas beat the air in vain. Uh, fantastic image. Um, so yes, it, it is more than it is more than just light. Eve, you had a question. Yeah, um, her, how she works is kind of like the ultimate form of gluttony. Like if you're stuck, if you're a human and you're stuck in a small place with only a limited amount of oxygen, you're going to start taking really small breaths. <laughs> but she would be the one to just be like, <laughs> like hyperventilating. <laughs> yeah, she is. She is intrinsically parasitic, and it's, I mean, she doesn't, it's not only that she consumes light and therefore destroys it and therefore provi- pre, you know, uh, uh, prevents herself from getting more food, 
she blocks it out. I mean, she spins the web. Though she is cloaked in a shadow of her own making and therefore hungry because she doesn't get... She could get more light if she just stops spinning the stupid webs. But, you just need someone else to fill the biological niche. <laughs> yeah, it's, unfortunately, she's not able to create a static system there, and it just doesn't work. In the end, of course, it's always destructive. How does she end? Yeah, it's, we're told it's, it's uncertain, right? But the, but the rumor is, <laughs> in the end, she, she consumes herself uh, in her utmost famine. And that, of course, is only the logical extension of what she's been doing all along. Uh, and the ultimate illustration of the self-destructive nature of evil that she's illustrated all along. Notice she also devours her mates, too. Uh, you know, she, she both desires to propagate herself, but also then consumes the ones that, that with, with whom she propagates herself. So, I mean, it's again, that, that, that's still that kind of contradictory self-destructive impulse. Thinking of, of Ungoliant, therefore, let's go back to Melkor. Notice the progression that Melkor goes through. Look on page 31. This is in the description of Melkor in the Valaquenta. And look how Tolkien describes the progression of Melkor's outlook and being. Second paragraph in, in Of the Enemies. From splendor he fell through arrogance to contempt for all things save himself, a spirit wasteful and pitiless. Understanding, he turned to subtlety in perverting to his own will all that he could use until he became a liar without shame. Again, notice that same, like ungoliant, that, that acquisitiveness and perversion, that parasitic nature. He began with the desire of light, but when he could not possess it for himself alone, he descended through fire and wrath into a great burning down into darkness. See, on the one hand, it seems potentially um, counterintuitive that one who was driven by the desire for light would end up being the master of darkness. I mean, how do you get from A to B there? And that's what Tolkien is describing here. What gets him from the desire of light to darkness is that is greed, that self-focus. When he couldn't possess light, he descends from light through fire into darkness. Yeah. I think it's really interesting when it describes how he's using the evil words, the darkness. It says he filled it with fear for all living things, not he filled all living things with fear for it. Yes. Like he's, if, like darkness is by itself, manipulating yes, exactly. That's right. And, 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 the, and the, the, intrinsic, the intrinsic non-evil of darkness is an important point. Um, Melkor has filled darkness with fear, but darkness is not itself intrinsically fearful. Um, and without the taint of Morgoth's evil, there's nothing to fear in darkness. Um, the children have to be taught to fear darkness by Melkor. Um, after they awake, and then they, they hear, you know, they're, they, he spreads the stories of the Dark Rider, right, who comes in, like, when people wander off in the dark, captures them and takes them and turns them into orcs, right? Which, of course, you know, they say is probably actually true. It's not just a lying story that he put around. But in any case, he put, you know, he, so he fills the darkness with fear. Um, but I agree, it's not even about him, him acting upon the children directly. It's 
through the medium of darkness. But now think, where it says descending from the desire of light to darkness, and the middle, the middle point is fire. Right? He descended through fire and wrath. And you see the relationship between how fire stands as the middle point between light and darkness? How does that work? How does that make sense? Well, go ahead. Well, logistically, fire generates both light and darkness. Like, if you're sitting around a campfire, it's both light and dark. Like, you have shadows cast from the fire and the light of the fire itself. Yeah, it generates light, right? So his, his connection with fire is, I mean, he's, he's trying to make his own light, right? But, of course, the difference between fire and other light is what? Fire consumes. Yeah, fire consumes. Fire destroys things. Right? So it also creates light, it also creates darkness afterwards, right? When it burns stuff up. Um, so the way that fire is kind of a wasteful light, a destructive light instead of a nourishing light, as, the, as, as other light, like the light of the trees, seems to be. And so again, it's light that's taken and twisted for his purposes. And remember, his purpose is domination. I want to control. And that which I can't control, I want to destroy. Because I want to be master of all things, and the things of which I cannot be master, I want not to be. So that all that there is remaining, I am master of. Um, spirit wasteful and pitiless, he is, in that way. Because of sort of the extremity of his inward focus on himself. The logical opposite of this would be Nienna and her windows that look out from the walls of the world. Um, perhaps slightly, well, totally different from Nigel in the workhouse, but certainly all of Melkor's windows face inwards too, um, though for different reasons. Um, we don't see the ultimate end of Morgoth yet. That's not going to happen for a while. But we can see him walking in that direction. What is happening to, 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 to Melkor, to Morgoth, as time goes on? Brittany, what's... Yes, yes. He, his power decreases as time goes on. Notice this in the first paragraph, still on page 31. Great might was given to him by Iluvatar, and he was coeval with Manwe. In the powers and knowledge of all the, of all the other Valar, he had a part, but he turned them to evil purposes and squandered his strength in violence and tyranny. For he coveted Arda and all that was in it, desiring the kingship of Manwe and dominion over the realms of his peers. Notice how we're talking in the past tense here. He was coeval with Manwe. He's not anymore. He claims to be, I am the greatest of all the, of all the Valar. Dude, you used to be the greatest of all the Valar. But he's not anymore. He has squandered his strength. The way that Melkor uses his power diminishes him. And he gets increasingly diminished over time. He invests himself in his own power, in his servants, to make them greater and more powerful. He builds up the orcs. Uh, we will see that, you know, in... Uh, in, in Thangoradrim, Morgoth has like this really busy uh, R&D department where they're always, he's always coming up with new 
things to, to spring on the elves. Right? We met, we meet briefly. Wait, not in this reading, in the next reading. Glaurung the dragon, uh, you know, his, his, his big new weapon that he's been working on. Um, he is constantly devising new ways to defeat his enemies and to destroy things and to destroy people. But that impulse lessens him. He is putting himself into it. And he is being decreased by it. Fire burns itself up. It consumes the fuel that it needs to survive. Um, And eventually, it will burn itself out, and he will burn itself out. And you're right, Brittany, he does become restrained to a physical form. He can't leave his physical form anymore, like like the Valar can, the rest of the Valar can. Um, So we can see himself... We can see him getting weaker. He started off as the greatest of all created beings. What happens when the sun rises? He gets really, I think he used the word confounded, and it pains him. He doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, and he and his servants attack the moon. Tillian, who's driving the moon. Well, they don't go anywhere near Arian, the, 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 the damsel who is driving the sun. She's just too scary. He can't compete with her. She's a Meyer, and apparently she can kick his butt nowadays. Right? I mean, he's, he is lesser now. Um, we have, as I promised a couple weeks ago, we have now found the iron crown that he alludes to, the phrase that he uses in Mythopoeia, right, the iron crown that he makes for himself. Notice how he talks about it. The iron crown of Morgoth is such a telling image. This is the bottom of page 81. About halfway down that last paragraph there. In Angban, Morgoth forged for himself a great crown of iron, and he called himself king of the world. In token of this, he set the Silmarils in his crown. His hands were burned black by the touch of those hallowed jewels, and black they remained ever after, nor was he ever free from the pain of the burning and the anger of the pain. That crown he never took from his head, though its weight became a deadly weariness. His crown, which he designs to proclaim his lordship, becomes a deadly weariness for him. And the Silmarils, which he places in the crown as sort of the ultimate sign of his dominion, burn like crazy and pain him continually. Not quite as literally as Ungoliant, but like Ungoliant, he is destroying himself too. He has placed, he has forged his own burden for himself. He won't give up his iron crown. He won't give up dominion and kingship. He won't submit to Iluvatar, but in not submitting, he is making himself a slave. He is reducing himself. He is weakening himself and torturing himself. Watch the Iron Crown later uh, when we do finally get to his end um, and he, he is finally conquered. Um, watch what happens with his Iron Crown. It's pretty awesome. Now, we get further recapitulations of these same ideas. And not always just in purely and totally evil people, 
like Ungoliant and Melkor. What about Fanor? In Fanor, we can see some recapitulation of these same ideas as well. What does Fanor have in common with Melkor? Yeah. Pride. Pride. And also, to be fair, one should point out understandable pride. Fanor is legitimately the greatest. Um, there will be several points at which, uh, you know, we'll be talking about one of the characters in the story that's being told, and you can tell that this character must be somebody special because it, you know, he or she is given a superlative among all of, like, you know, like a Thingol, for instance, is the tallest of all the children of Iluvatar. Tallest elf ever who, who lived was Thingol. Uh, Luthien, his daughter, the most beautiful of the children of Iluvatar ever to live or whoever shall. So anyone who, who gets a superlative of all the children of Iluvatar, you know that they're really something special. Feanor is like the smartest, most attractive, uh, greatest craftsman. I mean, he gets like 10 superlatives. I mean, he is simply, in all dimensions, the most gifted, most powerful child of Iluvatar ever. Like Melkor then, of course. Um, how specifically do we see his pride manifested in ways that should perhaps remind us of Melkor? He finds it difficult to love his brothers. Yeah, good. We can see that the disunion in his family, um, that's always a bad thing. Uh, because, of course, it has disunion like that, has as its root selfishness, right? Um, so, yes, we see him, his envy of his brother and his, uh, his jealousy of his own position. That's a bad sign. Well, uh, he wants them to rise above the Valar, which is what Melkor himself wanted. Yeah, he, he, in objecting to Melkor, like ends up ventriloquizing all of Melkor's lies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he forgets that his power and his light is not his own. Yeah, he gets so wrapped up in the Silmarils yeah, that he forgets he didn't make the light of the Silmarils. The beauty of his greatest creation, uh, of his greatest, his greatest artifice, is a derivative greatness, is a derivative light. Um, it is the light of the Valar in the trees that he has captured in the Silmarils. But it's not his light. Brittany? He becomes very possessive of the Silmarils and wants to keep them all to himself. Yes. Yes, there's that, that telling moment at the crucial feast when he denies the sight of the Silmarils to everybody else. Um, they are kind of precious, aren't they? <laughs> yes, yes. I, no, uh, we, um, we totally should be thinking about, not just Feanor in particular, but this trend in general. Uh, Gollum is another Ungoliant-esque illustration uh, of this kind of thing. And, and in Gollum's career, because we get so much more of Gollum's career than we get of Ongolian's career, we see these things worked out in a much more interesting and complicated way. Um, Gollum's end is going to be kind of like Ongolian's end. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and Feanor's. Um, so yeah, no, that is, that is not an accident. That is not a, the difference here, of course, with Feanor, though, is that these are the works of his own hands, right? He has a greater sense of pride in it um, because he 
uh, there's that moment when he begins to love the Silmarils with a greedy love. And, and the thing that I would emphasize there is not just what's wrong about, about Feanor's love for the Silmarils, but also what is not necessarily wrong about it. That is, loving his works is okay. Um, even in one sense of using the word taking pride in his work is, a, is an okay thing in the way that we sometimes use the word pride to be, you know, like saying, like, you know, when your child does something and you're like, I'm proud of him, right? That doesn't mean that you have, like, satanic pride, uh, <laughs> you know, and, like, fall of Lucifer kind of pride. It's a totally different sort of th- phenomenon that we're describing when we use that word there. Um, remember, when Valinor, when the lights have been put out and the, the Valar are all gathered around, they're like, okay... Can we resuscitate the trees? And Yvonne's like, well, I've got some bad news and some good news, right? (laughs) Right, yes, uh, I can resuscitate the trees, but only if we have a little bit of their light. And then they're all like, oh, phew, well, thank goodness we have the Silmarils. Feanor, I mean, kudos to you for thinking to, like, preserve, like, you know, a backup system in the Silmarils like that. That was really clever. And, you know, and and they're like, so will you give us the Silmarils to break them and, and, and... renew the trees and he stops and thinks and you remember Tolkas is like come on you know, oh no though yay or nay but who will deny Yvonne I mean like to Tolkas he's like this is like an obvious question like I can't even believe you're thinking about this because of course all Tolkas can see is this is the light of the trees like yes you've preserved them in these like fancy gems and crystals and that's all cool and everything but it's the light of the trees and so to renew the trees obviously right you sacrifice the tiny little bit of light comparatively that you have kept in these stones for the sake of bringing all the whole trees back to life again no brainer from Tolkas's perspective it's a little harsh but I was waiting for that anyway uh, Aule, remember, speaks up and is like, hang on, Tolkis. We ask a greater thing than you know. It's like the, and, and, and what Aule is recognizing here is, you know, the love of a craftsman for his art is a fine thing. That's a good impulse. Aule has that impulse, and it is in him a good impulse. He, he had, and, and Luvatar confirms in the conversation that Aule has with Iluvatar about the whole dwarf incident, right? he points out, I, I'm just being like you. You made me in your image. I, I, I come from your mind. And so therefore, I am a maker like you are a maker, and I love my creatures like you love your creatures. That's not bad. Loving the Silmarils, not bad. Loving them with a greedy love, that's bad. Denying the sight of them to others, that's bad. That's where you can really see uh, that... Not all is well uh, in the soul of Feanor. And even before that, we get hints of it. Remember, he starts to spend more and more time by himself and separate himself from others and to work in secret. That can sometimes be okay, but it usually doesn't work. Remember, Melkor was the same way. He often traveled in the void by himself apart from, apart from the other Einor. Man, those loners, they're going to out a gun any day. <laughs> That's what happens again and again. We see, uh, watch out for loners in Tolkien's world. 
you know, like, like say, for instance, you know, you're a wizard who's like, hey, I know, like, I'll get a tower all of my own, and I'll set up in a tower, and I'll keep everybody else out, and I'll do my own thing. Watch out for those people, man. They, they, they often go bad. Or rather, their solitude is like a, a symptom of their going bad or a warning sign. Yeah, Brittany? Also, when Fanor um, doesn't want to give up the Silmarils, he says, <laughs> he says that he could never make he could never make something that good again. And the Tulare, they don't want they say the same thing about their ships, but he takes the ship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He he has no sympathy for the for the Tulare, and not just the burning of the ships of the Tulare. Um, is, I mean, okay, the kinslaying is worse than the burning of the ships at Lascar, but you know. There's something deeply horrifying about that. It might be one of the most purely evil acts that Feanor ever commits. Um, I say purely evil because his other evil or questionable acts are still mingled with some degree of deception or with some fraction of uh, positive, the warped motivation. That is, for instance, the desire to be free is a good desire um, to rebel against the Valar in order to, to declare yourself free is warped, but still like the desire for freedom is a good thing. The burning of the ships, he more than anyone else understands what that means to take the great masterwork of these craftsmen and just literally set fire to it for no good reason. I mean, if they just abandoned the ships there, Fingolfin, I mean, his betrayal of Fingolfin would still have been affected. I mean, if his goal is just to abandon them on the other side, they could have just done that. He didn't have to burn the ships, but he burns the ships. So, I mean, it's, it shows not only the, the, the completeness and the savagery of his betrayal of his brother and, and his brother's people, but, yeah, but the, the fact what those ships are and what they mean as works of craft um, makes it, a really horrifying moment from Feanor, and I agree, that's really important. Um, even, again, thinking of the nature of evil and Feanor's selfishness, even his rationale when he says no to, uh, uh, to Yovana, that I, you know, I'm not going to break the jewels. Remember, he says, you know, I, if I do break them, I'll break my heart. Um, well, okay, first of all, Really? Um, if so, that means probably your love for them is not an ordinate love to begin with. It probably shows there's something wrong with your attachment to these jewels, if that's really true. But second of all, well, if it would really kill you to give up the Silmarils, would that be such a bad thing? I mean, that is an act of self-sacrifice, to give one's life for the sake of, of the light of everyone else. Well, that's actually the kind of thing that many other, a choice that many other people choose to take. But Feanor's like, again, to Feanor, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> it would kill me. Therefore, no, obviously. I can't do it. I won't do it. Here's one point where we're going to peek two pages past the end of the reading for this session. Uh, but it's not a major point. What happens when Feanor dies? Does anyone recall? Marta? Doesn't his body just kind of evaporate into like smoky dust? Yes, there's no burial for Feanor. 
because yeah, his, his, when his spirit departs from his flesh, it just burns into ashes. What is his name? Feanor mean? It's not what his dad named him. His dad names him Kuru Finway, derived from his own name, Finway. His mom names him Feanor, which means spirit of fire. His name is the spirit of fire. And when his spirit departs his body, it burns him, he burns himself into ash at the departure of his fiery spirit from his, from his body. It's not exactly an Ungoliant ending, but it's sort of a, an outward demonstration of how the fire of his spirit has been destroying him. Or rather, the way that he has turned the fire of his spirit uh, has been in self-destructive ways ever since he began to look on the Silmarils with a greedy love. Yeah, Max? Is, that, is his name intended to be a kind of nod to how the literal spirits of fire generally serve Melkor? Well, it is true that there's a, a certain um, correlation between fire and evil. That's not to say that fire itself is evil, uh, but yeah, there is a correlation between fire. And in fact, even in the Ainulindale, it suggests that fire is one of the things which came about as a result of Melkor's discord in the song. Um, so again, it's not to say quite that fire is itself intrinsically or essentially evil, but, uh, but it's questionable from the beginning. So yeah, now he's, this doesn't mean that Feanor is necessarily predestined to uh, a life of crime. Um, remember, when the Valar are gathered together mourning after the darkening of Valinor, they're mourning over two things, primarily, Right? One, the death of the trees. That was kind of a downer, so they're all still pretty sad about that. But also, they are mourning the downfall of Feanor. Like the, the great good he could have accomplished had he not fallen is incredible. I mean, the potential he had for good um, was unparalleled, unprecedented in all of of all the children of Iluvatar. Um, so they mourn for the marring of Feanor as much as they mourn for the marring of Valinor, for the darkening of Valinor. Um, and so that shows his fall is not inevitable. Um, he could have directed his spirit of fire towards good ends, uh, but he didn't and ends up incinerating himself. Post-mortem, but still. Now, Feanor's story is also a reminder of Iluvatar's relationship to evil. Uh, that is, remember, of course, the great speech that Iluvatar gives to Melkor after the discord, saying, you know, look, nothing you can do. Um, you can't do anything that doesn't have its uttermost source in me, nor can you change the music in my despite. Everything that you, you know, in, in trying to do so, you will prove but mine instrument of things more wonderful than you could have possibly imagined. And we see this happening in Feanor's story too. Remember there's that uh, discussion of Finway's choice to remarry? On top of page 65, a couple lines down in the first full paragraph, in those unhappy things which later came to pass and in which Feanor was the leader, many saw the effect of this breach within the house of Finway, judging that if Finway had endured his loss and been content with the fathering of his mighty son, the courses of Feanor would have been otherwise, and great evil might have been prevented. For the sorrow and the strife in the house of Finway is graven in the memory of the Noldoran elves. 
So it would have been better had, or had Finway not married again and just had Feanor, then maybe Feanor wouldn't have gone bad and he would have achieved his, you know, undreamed of potential uh, for good. But the children of Indus, his second wife, were great and glorious and their children also. And if they had not lived, the history of the Eldar would have been diminished. So Finway, perhaps, chooses poorly to marry a second time. And in doing so, ends up creating this situation, which at least contributes strongly to the fall of Feanor and the rebellion of the Noldor. So that was bad, and evil came of that. But if he hadn't done that, then great glory would not have occurred. Had they not lived, the history of the Eldar would have been diminished. In other words... Had Finway decided not to get married, things would have been different, but they wouldn't have been better. Right? Um, the poor choice of Feanor, which and I think we are prompted to see it as a poor choice, the poor choice of Finway is he is made and Feanor is going to be made also, the instruments of things more glorious and wonderful than they imagined. Marta? Um, when you said that, it reminded me of... Uh... Of yeah. Because they, he says that Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's that's really the principle. Um, and here we can see it illustrated more plainly. We don't get a, we don't see a lot of the what ifs in Leaf by Niggle, for instance. I mean, if you know, how would th- how would things have looked had Niggle and Parrish worked together during their lives? But uh, it's, it's hard to imagine exactly what might have happened had that occurred. Here we get much clearer kind of what-if scenarios, and we see that principle illustrated. So we see that not only, of course, in Finway's decision, but in Feanor's as well. Um, Remember what happens when Feanor defies the messenger of the Valar, and uh, and Manwe receives the report of this? Page 88. This is the doom of Mandos that is being passed upon the Noldor, upon their rebellion, and upon Feanor especially. And Feanor, on the second to last paragraph there, has defiant words in response. But notice how he ends. Therefore I say we will go on, and this doom I add. The deeds that we shall do shall be the matter of song until the last days of Arda. Yeah, yeah, they will. Look at page 98. About two-thirds of the way down that first paragraph, Manway is being... It's all these things that Feanor has said and done are being reported to Manway and the other Valar. And it was told by the Vanyar, who held vigil with the Valar, that when the messengers declared to Manwe the answers of Feanor to his heralds, Manwe wept and bowed his head. But at that last word of Feanor, that at the least the Noldor should do deeds of song, deeds to live in song forever, he raised his head, as one that hears a voice far off, and he said, So shall it be. Dear bought those songs shall be accounted, and yet shall be well bought, for the price could be no other. Thus, even as Eru spoke to us, shall beauty not before conceived be brought into Ea, and evil yet be good to have been. 
And Mandos pops up and says, and yet remain evil. To me shall Feanor come soon. The songs are going to be a good. Iluvatar is going to bring good out of this. Remember this when everything seems really, really horrible and when the tragedy is being compounded upon tragedy over the course of the rest of this book. What is going to come from this? Rebellion. Lots of bad things for the people involved. But they will also, as Melkor before them, prove Iluvatar's instruments in bringing about something greater and more glorious than they could have imagined. And the songs that are sung about them will be well bought, he says. Um, And evil shall be good to have been. That is the grace and foresight of God at work. This doesn't mean that evil is good, or that evil is okay, or that it's a good thing that Feanor did what he did. It remains evil, as Mandos insists, but it will be good to have been. We can see, really briefly, we can see even a wider recapitulation of these same trends in the Noldor as a whole. Right? They seek to separate themselves from the rest of the Eldar over in Valinor, from the Valar themselves. We're going to declare our own independence and become a little, you know, our splinter faction. We're going to return back to Middle-earth and we're going to rule there to seek wider realms and more power. Um, Side note, did you notice Goadriel's perspective on this? This is the one time we meet Goadriel and see her doing anything here in Valinor. What does she think about Feanor and his plan to return to Middle-earth? Remember? She doesn't like him, but she likes the idea of going back to Middle-earth. She wants to explore. Yeah. She is, she is one of the ones who is really hot for the returning to Middle-earth idea. She loves this idea of ruling a realm at her own command. Uh, this is uh, on the very bottom of 83 that we see this. Goadriel, the only woman of the Noldor to stand that day tall and valiant among the contending princes, was eager to be gone. No oaths she swore, but the words of Feanor concerning Middle-earth had kindled in her heart, for she yearned to see the wide unguarded lands and to rule there a realm at her own will. Remember this when we meet Goadriel later on. The story of Goadriel that begins here will end in the Fellowship of the Ring. So just to be sure, rule there a realm at her own will, that's supposed to sound ominous. Right. Yeah, it should. It should. Like, she wants to be called Lord. Kind of like Melkor did. It's, it's, it's not a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Remember, this is, this is the really important backstory behind Frodo's visit to Lothlorien in the Fellowship of the Ring. So just, I just wanted to draw this to your attention. Galadriel is going to be a really minor character through the rest of the Silmarillion, but just, just keep it in mind for later on. Um, but anyway, so the, the Noldor as a whole, they want to separate themselves, elevate themselves. What's the result? What is the doom of Mandos? What is the curse of the Noldor? They're banished, yes. And what's going to happen to them? What's going to keep happening to them? What are they always paranoid about after this? 
division, treachery. The Doom of Mandos is really impressive. It's on page 88. For, the, for though Eru appointed you not to die in Ea, and no sickness may assail you, yet slain ye may be, and slain ye shall be, by weapon and by torment and by grief, and your houseless spirits shall come then to Mandos. And what's going to happen to them? To evil end shall all things turn that they begin well, and by treason of kin unto kin, and the fear of treason shall this come to pass. That is going to haunt the Noldor. Treachery, treason. Now notice both of these things. Slain ye may be and slain ye shall be. They sound like curses. Like the Valar are going to make bad things happen to punish them. And it's kind of true. But at the same time, it is the logical consequence of the choice that they have made. They, are setting, they have declared war. They are setting themselves out in war. They're going to die in wars. They have separated themselves and tried to isolate themselves as a group from the rest of the elves and from the Valar. They're going to go off and do their own thing. And what's going to happen? They're going to be divided. They're going to be constantly going off and doing their own thing. And they're not going to be able to trust one another because the heart of what they did was to separate themselves. So naturally, what is going to happen, what always happens to people who turn towards the self is betrayal of others. Because if your emphasis is on the self, it's not on other people. And you're not going to sacrifice yourself and your own interests for other people. So when there is conflict, you will stab the other person in the back to preserve yourself. And this is going to happen. Morgoth's strategy, of course, is to exploit this. And he will dedicate most of his efforts in Beleriand to sowing discord among the elves. And this makes perfect sense. He understands how this works. Okay. In our next session, we will look at good guys. Uh, and uh, some of the, sort of the, the patterns that we can see in positive things, though some of them, though positive, are still dangerous. And that's it for the middle session of the triple header. In session 12, we'll look at the doings of the Noldor in Beleriand, ending at the coming of men. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.